0: This is the morning that I wish that I had studied at Baptist Seminary so I could bring hellfire down. <laughs> we should have had you preach today, Phil, I guess. Oh. That's right. There you go. It is cold. Of all days, not to wear a jacket. We uh, continue in Romans, um, transforming faith into freedom. In our study of Romans, and we are uh, embarking on the eighth chapter this morning with the first verse, so you can begin turning there. Uh, Dr. Boyce has called this, from his opinion, the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Uh, And he found um, a sympathetic voice there with Martin Luther and John Calvin and several others who have looked at this eighth chapter of Romans as um, incredibly transforming in their walk and it certainly has been uh from the time I first started studying the Bible into this day incredibly influential in my life in my walk in my relationship with Christ and, and and developing um in that relationship how I see God um and how God sees me and so it, it is a it is a chapter that has uh great weight um some have said really chewy meat um, and it goes deep. I don't know how far we will go today because of that. We'll see what the spirit does with this message and and we'll go there. but Paul has, as you know, has been writing of justification by faith alone and and how um he answers these rhetorical questions in chapter six and seven well, should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? And and what about the law? And and to both of those, he answers that no, we don't sin all the more. We seek to sin all the less because we see what God has done. And then in chapter 7, he ends with this conflict between the law that has convicted him of his need for Christ and brought him to a, a revelation of his own wretchedness. And how that um, the very things that he knows that God would have him do, he doesn't do. And the things that he knows he should do, uh, he he leaves undone. And the very things he wants to do because of his life in the Spirit, he doesn't do. He does the complete opposite. And we read about that last week. That brings him to this place of, of, I need Christ. And without Christ, I'm left in my wretchedness. And so that's where we pick up. And I'm going to actually start with uh, verse 25 in the last part of chapter seven, and move through eight, um, through chapter, or I'm sorry, through verse 12. It's 9:44 uh, in your pew Bibles. Hear the word of God. Um, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin. That dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact, if the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life is the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. Let's pray. God, what an incredible declaration of our freedom that Your Word gives us. Lord, may we know the fire of being set free for the sake of Your glory. May the words, O Lord, that come forth this morning glorify Your name. May we become a church as we are becoming a church that seeks Your glory. And blaze us, O Holy Spirit, that Your Word may reign. Forgive me my sins, O God, that I may preach Your Word. In Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So in all of this, Paul has brought us to this point of this amazing declaration. You might want to remember these words. Udin ara nun kata You want to say that with me? Una. What? Udin ara nun kata karino. you now to learn greek there is now therefore no condemnation it's an amazing declaration that paul makes after going from chapter 3 into the end of chapter 7 about this idea that we have stand before god justified by faith in christ jesus and all of his works and he has explained to us how that justification has been Fulfilled in Christ Jesus, he brings us to this 8th chapter in this first verse and says, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what is Paul communicating here in these verses that we have read this morning, except that the reason that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is because God has provided to us a free life. And God has given us the provision to live this free life. And God has given this provision to us in three very distinct ways. One, in His unfailing love. Two, in He has given us a new life purpose. He has provided for us a purpose in living. And three, He has provided for us an experience of His unfailing love for the rest of eternity. And because that God has given this provision to us, we have the assurance and the surety of knowing that there is, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus proven by God's provision itself. That if God hadn't provided a way, there would be condemnation. But because He has, there is provision. There's an old-fashioned way we used to say this, and I think some ways it's a much better way, and we've tried to soften things up maybe sometimes to be more politically correct and maybe more attractive to a lost world. But the idea of this word, this Greek word that you just learned, katakarino it's a word that literally means damnation. There is therefore now no damnation for those in Christ Jesus. You see, the weight of that word is the weight that we begin to understand that there was a time when we were a damned people. And that there are people outside of Christ right now who are damned. Who are under the wrath of God. That is being stored up right now, as Paul has said, throughout all of these chapters. That God's wrath is being stored out to be poured upon a people who are not in Him. And that includes everyone who is not in Christ Jesus that the whole entire universe outside of Christ is doomed to be damned. And at the very core and the very heart of who you and I as believers are are to have a we are people to have a realization that we were in past tense damned and subject To eternal damnation. But because of Christ, it has been eradicated from us. We have been pulled out of that and elevated to live in Christ at his throne. And I don't know about you, but for me, it begs the question how can this be? You see, it's hard for us to really realize that apart from Christ, we are truly dead. It's another, it's another Greek word. And I've studied it well. It means the same thing throughout all of the New Testament. The word dead in the Greek, it means dead. We forget. We're, we were dead. But now we live. And that life... That realization that once I was dead, but now I'm alive, is the declaration of there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because I once was damned, but now I'm not. And it begs that question, then how can that be? How did I come to life? What happened? What was this dramatic transformation where God invaded into my corpse and brought me back to life? And Paul says it's this. It was the provision of God's unfailing love for those who He has called unto Himself. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. And here's the operative word, this word law. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's these juxtaposition laws. There's this law of sin and death that Paul has talked about in chapter 7. And now he's talking about the life and the Spirit. This law of living in the Spirit might say that the law of living in the flesh is the law of being consumed by that which is decaying. The law of damnation, the law of I want what I want when I want it, and what I want is more death. That in my flesh I am driven to die. I want to purchase dying things. I want to surround myself with that which rust and moth come and eat. I want to spend my life 60, 70 hours a week maybe pursuing the cushion of dying things that will only burn and turn to wood, hay, and stubble. My life is consumed by my flesh. I spend most of my time looking to build my own kingdom, my own glory, my own self-promotion. I seek to protect all that that I have built in the flesh by protecting it myself, by worrying with anxiety in the middle of the night. By calculating what I might lose and how far the fall might be. You see, the flesh has driven me and at the end of the day, because I reject being relieved from my damnation, my only hope is death that somehow death will come and relieve me from my pain as though I were not an eternal being and that total separation and alienation and damnation from God could ever satisfy my soul. You see, that is the spirit of the flesh. That is what drives us further and further and further into death But Paul says because of Christ you have been set free from that so that you might be consumed by the Spirit of life. We might say the Spirit of life is the Spirit of Christ. That we are now consumed to pursue those things which are eternal. Those things that will last forever and ever. The glory of God The kingdom of God. The praising of God. The wealth and the glory of God which we are joint heirs to. Seeing people come alive to God for the sake of God's glory. Knowing that God will provide all along the way. that we're willing to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week to see the promotion of God's glory on this earth. As we pray in His prayer, Father, may Thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Is our life revealing that which we pray? Oh God, I pray Your will be done on earth even as in heaven until I get into the earth. And then it's, oh Lord, forgive me because I've been consumed by the earth. But you see, we've been set free from that earth so that we may be consumed with the will of the Father in our lives. There used to be a day, it's more isolated now than before, where men and women, because of the glory of God, And the sacrifice of Christ in their life, and their realization of there truly was hell, and there truly was destined, I truly was destined for hell, but now there is life, and I'm truly destined for life because Christ has set me free by His Spirit. That people would give up everything that this world would offer to take that news to build the glory of God all across the world. People who were so impassioned by it that they were willing to lose their lives. Christian martyrs in the first and the second and the third century who went to the stake with smiles on their face singing hymns because they were consumed with the passion and the glory of seeing the advancement of their Christ Jesus and His kingdom being advanced even if it meant their lives. They were a people that were on fire for the glory of God. They were a people who were consumed by the glory of God. They were a people more alive than the people of today possibly. Their spirits were changing and transforming their world wherever they were for the glory of Christ. Because they truly believed that God loved them and provided for them life that was eternal and had taken them out of life that was temporal and life that was failing. I suppose it's true that they didn't have as many toys to surround themselves with so it may have been easier. There was no central air, central heat. There was no Nice cars to drive into a nice paved parking lot with. There were no warm homes that they came out of to gather together. There were only Roman guards, rock throwing pagans, sometimes roaring lions, burning stakes. You see, they would have rather been condemned by the flesh and all that is fleshly and worldly than to live condemned by God. For them, to have no condemnation in Christ Jesus was to live a life eternal from that moment on. To be consumed with that which was eternal from that moment on. Because there was two laws at work and they chose through Christ the law of the Spirit. We may look at it too as the law of Christ and the law of Adam. That they were inextricably connected to Adam, our father of the flesh. And because of his sin, we were inextricably connected to sin and the law of sin. And of course, the wages of that law is death. And yet, Christ unhinged us from that so that we might be connected to the law of the Spirit of life. Spirit of Christ. So Paul says in verse 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do by sending His only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God sent His only Son in the likeness of that which is damned so that He might take on our damnation upon Himself and inflict Himself with condemnation from God on our behalf And it begs the question again, why? Why? There's only one solution. Love. First and foremost, though, you and I must understand what this love looks like and what this love is. First and foremost, God expresses love for His own glory. We can never forget that. Above all other things, God loves His glory. But above all other things, God is in love with God. And how else could He be? God Himself is love. God Himself is glory. God Himself is satisfied in being God totally and fully. But because God is love and because God is glory and because God is totally satisfied in who He is, God in His benevolence wants to reveal Himself to that which He has created so that He might express Himself in love to those whom He's created in His own image. And yet God also loves equally so His justice. He loves His integrity. He loves His purity. And because of that, it has to be satisfied. What a dilemma it might seem from a human perspective. Love on one hand. Expressive love. Wanting to, wanting to love. Not because it's needed, but because He's generated by His own will and His own passion and His own counsel. He has determined to love us through His glory. And yet on the other hand, we're so unlovable because of His, his justice. But the solution still is love. He so loves that He will display justice upon His Son whom He loves more than anything. So that that death becomes our life. So that that in capturing of Jesus the man and in his fleshliness in his humanness. He is forsaken to death so that you and I might be risen in life only by his love. His love for His glory. His love for His righteousness. His love for Himself. And secondly, His love for His creation. He did this and He imputed this in us. How can we know? How can we know? What do we mean by imputation? That this death in Christ, that by faith we believe, we too died in Christ. And so as the wrath of God, which was poured out, the damnation of God, which was poured out upon Christ on the cross, was a damnation for my sin and for your sin. And His wrath was poured out against that and upon that and in that. And Christ's life was sacrificed on your behalf and on mine. And in the same way we have faith that we were in Him in that death, we are also in Him in His resurrection. So that the idea of this imputation is that His death was our death. It was imputed to us as though we had died and therefore His righteousness is our righteousness and imputed to us, us as He lives so that we live also. And this being set free, this free life, is a provision to us by God Himself through God the Father on God the Son who raised us through God the Holy Spirit. and seals us in His love forever to allow us to see God's provision of a new life purpose. Verse 4, Paul says this. Why, why has God condemned us condemn the sin of the flesh in us so that we might live according to the spirit and for he says it's in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled where in us the purpose for that is that we might walk not according to the flesh any longer but according to the spirit you see that's God's purpose It's a provision of a new life purpose where our purpose used to be the flesh. Our purpose used to be separation. Our purpose used to be that which is dying. Our purpose now is the Spirit. Our purpose now is that which is living. Our purpose now is that which is eternal. Those of you who call upon the name of Christ... If you aren't, and I'm not, growing in a new eternal purpose, we must repent. If we are not being more and more consumed with the glory of God, for the glory of God, and the expansion of His kingdom, the things of His glory, we must wonder, Have i truly given my life to Christ. If we are still consumed with this world and the passions of this world, and they're not fading away in our life as the Spirit is growing in our life. If we said that we made a profession of faith in Christ and yet we're willing just to sit in the puddle of self for the rest of our days, it would not be healthy for me not to confront you and say, have you truly confessed your faith in Christ? As we have read over the last weeks that Paul says, there's a dramatic transformation that happens to us when we take on the spirit of life. And that transformation is this that the things of self and the things of flesh fade away and the things of glory and the things of the Savior extenuate in our lives. We don't remain as we were. We conform and transform into the image of who Christ Himself is. God did not Bring us out of damnation so that we might continue to glorify ourselves. God did not bring you and I out of damnation that we might continue to glorify that which is dying. He brought us out to give us the purpose of living to bring Him glory. Doesn't it make sense that if God's priority of love is the love of His own glory, that it certainly should be the priority of our lives and our loves? How do we do this? How do we begin to see this new mindset, this new mind of the Spirit? How do we set our minds on the things of the Spirit? There's another Greek word. I won't burden you with it. But this word set and this word mine are the exact same words in the Greek. And what it means is understanding, come in agreement with, start seeking those things. Make it your intention in your life to wake up in the morning and seek the things of the Spirit. I want to give you this quickly. Maybe seven steps here, and I won't go into them in great detail today, but seven steps that we can begin to say, I want to intentionally walk in the Spirit. The first one is this, deepen in intimacy with Christ to God's glory. How do you do that? no other way to be intimate with Christ than to be intimate with His Word. There's no other way for you to be intimate with Christ without being intimate with what His life is in the Gospels. There's no way for you to be intimate with Christ without being intimate with what the Spirit will reveal to you and illuminate to you in His Word. If you're not Designing your relationship to Christ and understanding who Christ is as He has chosen by His sovereign will to reveal Himself in the special revelation of His Word, then you're making a God in your own image. You must seek how God has revealed Himself, how He has decreed Himself, how He has commanded us to live by spending time in the Spirit and His Word to draw in intimacy with Him and therefore bringing glory to God by the way your life is transformed. Two, be driven to walk humbly under the supervision of the Word. Don't just be hearers of the Word, but doers. Doers. Unless you apply what you read, unless you apply what God reveals, you remain in the puddle of self. You must take your stand on the promises of God, even if they're contrary to the promises of men. You must take your stand on the promises of God, even if they're contrary to the promises of of human logic. You must take your stand on the Word of God, even if it's contrary to the social, political, and economic standards of the world that you live in today. It must be your guide, your priority, your lamp, And mine as well. Three. We must begin to understand what it means to fear the Lord again. To increase and what it means for us to glorify God because He's worthy. Not because we get something, not because we hope that everything will work out in the flesh, but solely because God is worthy, because He is God and we are not. Because He is the Creator and we are creaturely. Because because He is wholly pure. Talked about this with the worship team not too long ago. The idea that if if God were to walk in the room and make a physical manifestation, some of us think we'd run up and hug Him, or we'd say, Hi, Jesus, good to see you. You would be the first in biblical history to ever do such a thing. Everyone else has fallen at His feet as though dead. We've lost that somehow. The anticipation of being in the presence of one so mighty, so weighty, so full of glory that it would make us fall face down as though dead. And our only hope would be the same hope that the Apostle John had, that through his his merciful grace that he would bend down, he would condescend down and touch us and say, fear not. You see, the first reaction of John the Apostle at the glorified Christ was phobetomai, fear. And only because the mercy of Christ condescended down in humility and touched Him and said, fear not, it is I. We must regain and recapture the idea of God is so otherly than who we are that if we don't have Christ, we would certainly be consumed by the fire of a holy, holy, holy God. Four, our love for God must increase because He has called us sons and daughters. Not only has He said, fear not, it is I, but it is I, your Father. Father. You are my son. You are my daughter. To understand the childlike nature between God our Father and us who have been adopted as sons and daughters is to understand what it means to truly walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit too by our love for other people begins to grow because we realize that as other believers, we are all sons and daughters. Do the respect, the courtesy that brothers and sisters would give one another because we're family. To walk in the Spirit too means our passion for those who aren't part of the family grows. If we truly believe that apart from Christ, there is only damnation, how can we say we love Christ and not care for those who don't know Christ? How can we say we love Christ, the one who came from His throne on heaven, to transform us from that which was flesh into that which is eternal spirit to transform us from that which was death into that which is life. How can we say that based upon that mercy and his love for us that we would say, I'm indifferent towards those who don't know it. I just don't really care. You see, the Spirit compels us and draws us to honor the One who has loved us by loving those who don't know His love. And then seven, our trust in our security in Christ and in our salvation continues to grow. Maybe just two points for today. But how do we begin to apply that which we've heard? One is to enter a thankful life. I pray the first thing that begins to occur to you and I is thanksgiving. To be a people who are known for our thanksgiving. Throughout the Scriptures, God continues to beckon His people more than, more than the blood of animals, more than, more than money, more than wheat, more than grain, more than anything. Bring me an offering of thanksgiving. God wants us, calls us, commands us to be a people who are thankful. Thankful that there's now no condemnation in Christ. Thankful people beget thankful people. Bitter and selfish people beget bitter and selfish people. To discipline your mind by engaging in the Logos, by engaging intentionally with Christ in his word determine set your mind to be in his word and three become a living proclamation be a living example of the gospel be a living person who is no longer condemned We look soon and pray soon for a new pastor coming. You want to do him a favor? You want to do his family a favor? Become a people inflamed for the Gospel of Christ. Don't look to Him to be your passion. Look to Christ to be your passion. Become a church on fire for the kingdom of God, for the things of the Spirit, to drive this church into that community. And you will not get the pastor you want necessarily, but you will get the pastor you need. Do him a favor. Ignite the Spirit's fire in your life and in each other's life. And become a body of people who are excited and passionate for the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom of God for the sake of His glory. And you will find a pastor that's excited to be your pastor. I don't know about you, but I pray for our search team. I truly pray that they don't look for the man they want. I truly pray they don't look for the man you want. I pray they're looking for the man that God wants because you need him. It's time to get on fire. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those of Christ Jesus. I spent a few years in chronic kidney failure. They were days of imprisonment. Imprisoned to a body that was dying. And I knew my body was dying on a daily basis. And as each day passed by, I felt death creeping in with each day. I can't begin to tell you the sense of joy, relief, excitement that I felt when the phone call came and said, your wife is a match. She can give you her kidney. And you will live. And as glorious and as wonderful and as thanksgiving as that was for me, I tell you the truth that Christ has given this church something much more. He has given you a new heart, not made of flesh, but made from the same material of his heart. Eternal, undamned, not dying, but forever living. There is now, therefore, No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to Your table and we feed from Your Word, we realize that the morsels that come are only the sign of the feast to be had. That we are consumed, O God, by the purposes of a new life because You have provided for us an unfailing love and a new life's mission. And that we will experience this unfailing love and this new mission for all of eternity. And so now, Lord, I ask that You would separate this bread from its common use, this fruit of the vine from its common use, that it would be truly food for our souls and our spirits, O God, that it would be truly drink that refreshes us and strengthens us and renews our resolve. For the sake of Your glory, the expansion of Your kingdom, and the praises of Your people. We eat and drink to Your glory, O Christ, as we wait upon Your return. Be with us now. Amen. So we partake in this covenantal meal that Christ established before He went to His throne in heaven. He gave us instructions. One is, this is His table. It's not East Glenville's table, but it is the table of the Lord. And all who call upon the name of the Lord are invited to eat and partake. We are instructed to not eat or part to drink in an unworthy manner. You may wonder, what is an unworthy manner? An unworthy manner is you thinking that you're worthy. If you, on the other hand, know that you are unworthy of what Christ has done, and it's only by His grace and His mercy, and you're going to fall upon that, and you're going to claim that as your righteousness, then come to the table. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter who you are. Come to the table. Parents, we ask that if your children do not understand what they're partaking of, that you would withhold it from them and you would teach them.